0: You're listening to A Parish Podcast, a reimagined faith community. Today, I'm going to take you back in history to look at a story from the Hebrew Scriptures. There are lots of great stories in the Old Testament, stories that are relatable because they reveal the weaknesses of human nature, but more importantly, stories that help us understand the nature and purposes of God. Our story today is about Elijah. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 19, but let me give you a bit of background. After the reigns of King David and Solomon, there had been a succession of bad kings, Kings who ignored their responsibilities as agents of God's covenant with Israel. This led to lots of strife and, ultimately, to the division of Israel into a northern kingdom, confusingly also called Israel, and a southern kingdom, Judah. At the time of our our story, Ahab is king of Israel. He has married a Phoenician princess, Jezebel. Even those of you who are a bit foggy on the Old Testament will probably recognize that name and react to it, assuming that Jezebel was probably not a wise, godly, and humane ruler. And you'd be right. Indeed, the Jezebel of this story is the source of the negative images associated with the name. She was cruel, godless, ambitious, and self-serving. Under her influence, Ahab promoted the worship of Baal... And undermined the worship of Jehovah. Jezebel had Hebrew priests seized and killed, and at the same time promoted the prophets of Baal to palace privilege. In the face of those evil deeds, Elijah announces that there will be a drought, a bad drought, a drought that will last until his God says it will rain. This was not only a severe punishment, but also a bit of irony. Baal, who Jezebel claimed to worship, was the god of rain. Yet despite all of the efforts of the prophets of Baal, there was no rain. Nearly three dry years go by. And then, in a piece of prophetic theater, Elijah shows the superiority of the god of Israel over Baal. The Hebrew people, including Ahab, bow down and acknowledge that Jehovah alone is God. Elijah isn't sure how sincere they are, but he nonetheless prays and the rains return. His skepticism about the sincerity of Ahab's repentance was valid. The next day, instead of hearing that the worship of Jehovah was being reinstated, Elijah learns that Jezebel has put out a warrant for his execution. That's where we'll pick up the story. When Elijah saw how things were, he ran for dear life to Beersheba, far in the south of Judah. He left his young servant there and then went on into the desert another day's journey. He came to a lone broom bush and collapsed in its shade, wanting in the worst way to be done with it all, to just die. Enough of this, God. Take my life. I'm ready to join my ancestors in the grave. Exhausted. He fell asleep under the lone broom tree. Poor Elijah. He has a deep and sincere faith in God. He has been a fearless prophet. Remember that in the Hebrew scriptures, prophets aren't soothsayers foretelling the future, they are more forthtellers, speaking forth God's truth in bold and direct ways. And that's what Elijah has done. He has directly confronted the sin of Ahab, which was no small task, given that a couple of chapters earlier we read that Ahab did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than had all the kings of Israel who were before him. Quite the record. Confronting that kind of evil takes a special kind of boldness. Elijah understood that the role of the king was to lead the people in the ways of their covenant with God. A covenant that assured them of God's faithful love, but required of them right worship and right treatment of neighbor. Right worship, right treatment of neighbor. Not idolatry and injustice. But it's hard to imagine a kingdom less committed to right worship and right treatment of neighbor than that of Ahab and Jezebel. In terms of right treatment of neighbor, as ancient royalty, you wouldn't, be partic- you wouldn't particularly expect Ahab and Jezebel to be concerned about the plight of their neighbors, especially the poor ones. But Jezebel in particular seems to have gone to the opposite extreme. At one point, Ahab wanted to expand his vineyard in Jezreel, but his neighbor Naboth didn't want to sell him the land. When Ahab mentioned this to Jezebel, she went off and had Naboth killed and then came and told Ahab that now might be a good time to try and buy that vineyard. Not exactly what Jesus would have called love of neighbor. But it was really in the area of idolatry that they strayed furthest from the ways of Jehovah. They built temples to Baal and erected a pole to Asherah, They suppressed the true religion of Israel and surrounded themselves with false prophets who were quite happy to benefit from political expediency to get material reward for endorsing Ahab's policies. Not only did Ahab and Jezebel fail to promote right worship of God, they invoked the gods as a tool for political manipulation. When Jezebel hears about Elijah's dramatic victory over the prophets of Baal, she sends him a message, The gods will get you for this, and I'll get even with you. That might seem an idle threat, given the fact that Elijah had just won a dramatic victory over Jezebel's god. But Jezebel wasn't concerned about the facts. She knew she could be really fuzzy on her theology and still use religion as a political weapon. Okay, so let's see what we have. The true worship of God is in shambles. Although Israel is still technically a Jewish state, faithful believers are only a minority of the population. The king and queen have abandoned their divinely given obligations under the covenant and simply see the role as a means to amass power and wealth. They've surrounded themselves with religious leaders who can be manipulated for their purposes. Those few religious leaders who have remained faithful and would have been able to speak are falling like flies. Observance of temple rituals has largely been abandoned, with many people feeling they could just have their own altars to worship at. When it seemed that Ahab had repented on Mount Carmel, it turned out that that was just a PR stunt. Elijah is profoundly discouraged by the whole thing and decides to give up and walk or run away. Does any of that sound familiar? Are you thinking, I've heard a story like that somewhere before? Or maybe you're thinking, wait, I'm living in that story. If Elijah were to appear today and take a look at the church in North America, he would probably see lots of parallels with his situation three millennia earlier and end up being just about as discouraged. Just like under Ahab, he would see religious leaders regularly being co-opted by politicians as a means to secure power. Countries like Canada and the U.S. would in the past have been considered Christian countries, but now active believers are in the minority, and even fewer regularly attend church. In the time of Ahab, it was Jezebel's sword that was taking down the faithful religious leaders. Now it seems it's personal scandals that are silencing them. And while contemporary political leaders aren't under covenant obligations the way Ahab was, Many of them seem to have abandoned any commitment to serve their electors and instead use their positions to amass power and wealth. We, too, can feel profoundly discouraged as we look around. Over the last two weeks, Aaron has been talking about the phenomenon of deconstruction. When the beliefs I used to cling to so tightly aren't working for me anymore, and I find I need to let some of them go to peel away the layers of wallpaper and get back to the truth and beauty of Jesus underneath all of the cultural trappings. And while many are finding freedom and grace in doing that kind of work, sadly, some become so discouraged they just walk away. This week, we're looking at another reason why people may walk away from the faith. Not difficulties with theology or spiritual practice, but problems with the institution of the church itself. The sellouts, the scandals, the compromise with contemporary culture, the failures of leadership, the lack of accountability. It's all so hard to take. Like Elijah, we may just want to run away and escape it all. If that's how we're feeling, we may wonder how Elijah dealt with it. How did things turn out for him? Let's continue the story from where we had left Elijah under the broom bush. Suddenly, an angel shook him awake and said, get up and eat. He looked around and to his surprise, right by his head, were a loaf of bread baked on some coals and a jug of water. He ate the meal and went back to sleep. The angel of God came back, shook him awake again and said, get up and eat some more. You've got a long journey ahead of you. He got up ate and drank his fill and set out. Nourished by that meal, he walked 40 days and nights all the way to the mountain of God, to Horeb. When he got there, he crawled into a cave and went to sleep. Then the word of God came to him. So, Elijah, what are you doing here? I've been working my heart out for the Lord, said Elijah. The people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, destroyed the places of worship, and murdered your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. Then he was told, go stand on the mountain at attention before God. God will pass by. A hurricane wind ripped through the mountains and shattered the rocks before God. But God wasn't to be found in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire, but God wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, a gentle and quiet whisper. I won't read the whole passage. Elijah reiterates his complaint about the futility of his mission, but then God tells him to go and anoint a new person as king. And God instructs him to anoint Elisha to succeed him as prophet. Finally, God points out that Elijah is not, in fact, alone. There are 7,000 true Israelites who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I love this story of Elijah's journey. He is in a profoundly low state, and God gives him exactly what he needs. At the moment when he is collapsed under the broom bush, he doesn't need a theological treatise on the role of the monarchy under the covenant. He doesn't need a new ministry task to busy himself with. He doesn't need to be surrounded by people. He needs sleep and food. So God sends a ministering angel to bring food and encourage rest. Next, he's told he has a journey ahead, a long journey. Actually, when Elijah gets to Mount Horeb, or you might know it as Mount Sinai, he is literally at the end of the road, as far south as he can go. If he goes much further, he will need to start swimming. God knows that Elijah needs that walk, that he needs the therapy offered by a long walk to allow the relentless rhythm of his footsteps to reset things that have gone out of kilter in his mind and to benefit from the long view of, So often when we're in the midst of a crisis, all we can see is the immediate threat, the oppressive challenge right in front of us. And in a digital age, that often keeps our focus within that half-metre distance between our eyes and our device screen. But walking forces us to lift our gaze and lengthen our perspective. Often that lengthening is a physical distance to that tree over there or the next turn on the path, the next horizon, But as we let our eyes see beyond the rim of our computer screen, our walk fosters a spiritual lengthening of gaze, a lengthening that lets us look back to God's past faithfulness and ahead to the time that will surely come when the current storm is over. God sees Elijah's distress and discouragement and sends him on a long walk. Then, when Elijah gets to the end of the road, God meets him. And God confronts some of the wrong thinking that's contributing to Elijah's deep despair. Elijah fears that Ahab and Jezebel and their ilk will be in charge forever. But God tells him that Ahab is already on borrowed time and that Elijah needs to go anoint his successor. Elijah fears that all the Israelites have turned to Baal. But God tells him that there are thousands of Hebrews who have maintained a deep and costly devotion to Jehovah. Elijah fears that the task is too big for him, but God has already selected Elisha as his co worker and successor. And most importantly, Elijah fears that God just isn't up to the task, that the whole thing is hopeless. So on Mount Sinai, in the place where Moses was allowed to see God's back, Elijah will get his own revelation of the divine nature. And it may not have been what he was expecting, because God was not present in the shock and awe. God wasn't to be found in the violence of the hurricane or the earthquake or the fire. God revealed God's self in a still, small voice. When our faith feels weak and we're deeply discouraged, we may think that we need something spectacular to revive our faith. Come on, God, just show me a miracle, then I'll believe. God doesn't work that way, and frankly, that way doesn't work either. The Israelites had just seen a dramatic show of God's power on Mount Carmel, but their repentance didn't even last 24 hours. God doesn't use spectacle or show of force to back people into a corner where they have no choice except to believe. C.S. Lewis says that the two tools that God cannot use on us are the irresistible and the indisputable. In the face of those, our free will would be overridden. We would simply be subsumed into God. God wants us to be in complete union with, to become one with God, and yet at the same time to do that by choice as our own unique selves. Lewis quips that God seems to want to have his cake and eat it too, Uh, to have us completely united with him, and yet retain our individuality. And so Elijah encounters the divine, not in the violent storm, but in a still, small voice. Elijah could enumerate all of Ahab and Jezebel's failures to keep the covenant in great detail. And when he focused on that, things indeed seemed hopeless. But God got him to focus on the other side of that covenant, not on the human side with all its failures, but on God, the faithful God, who will continue to keep covenant, who will continue to bring the kingdom, and who will continue to be present to Elijah. Apparently, Brian Zond, an author who I quote often, recently had lunch with a Catholic monk. They were talking about the state of the church, the scandals, the challenges... Brian asked his friend how he and his fellow monks were feeling about the church. He responded, We're actually really optimistic about the next 500 years. Brian said that stopped him in his tracks. His own roots were in a spirituality that was characterized by the dramatic and the instantaneous. And he realized that that perspective made it hard for him to see current events in the context of the grand sweep of God's work of saving the world. His friend, the monk, whose orientation was to the quiet and contemplative, had a different perspective. He was able to put the current struggles of the church, shameful and challenging though they are, into the perspective of a divine timeline that is ultimately rooted in eternity. If we remain short-sighted in our perspective, the current crises besetting the church can seem a catastrophe that even God can't recover from. But when we step back and get a longer perspective, we see that God's intention to bring the kingdom to dwell in community with God's people has not been sidetracked by Ahab and Jezebel, nor by exile in Babylon, nor the destruction of Jerusalem, nor the spectacular failures of the church that supported the Crusades, slavery, and genocide. Forty years ago, Malcolm Muggridge, the British journalist and social commentator, wrote a book he entitled The End. Of Christendom. In it, he documented the declining importance of the church in public discourse in the West and its diminishing relevance to contemporary society. But the tone of the book was nonetheless deeply hopeful, almost triumphant. The full title was The End of Christendom, But Not of Christ. Preachers will come and go, theology will adapt. Denominations will wax and wane, empires will rise and fall, but God's not going anywhere. The faithful God, the God of Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, does not change. And that is the God who will bring the kingdom. Amen and amen.